Um, welcome. It's great to be here. I, um, I've heard a rumor. I've been toiling away in my office upstairs. I've heard a rumor that there have been questions about foreign policy, and so it's very exciting. I'm going to make sure I leave lots of time for, for questions, so hopefully you have some. Um, but it turns out that this topic is, uh, is fairly contentious among libertarians, I think, um, and between libertarians and, and conservatives. You read the history of the kind of modern uh, right uh, in the United States, one of the critical dividing lines between libertarians and conservatives has traditionally been over foreign policy. Um, and it, the simplest way to describe it is that relative to other uh, people, other ideologies, libertarians have traditionally been opposed to war. Now, you could say that, well, most people are opposed to war, right? Uh, our, the, the hawks will claim that they are opposed to war, that defending, that being prepared to defend this country or being prepared to defend foreign allies also prevents war by deterring war. And so everyone would say, well, we're all opposed to war. But I do think that one of the ways in which libertarians are different from, let's just say, for the sake of argument, conservatives and left liberals, progressives, is that uh, war is the health of the state. Who's heard that? Who's heard that expression? War is the health of the state. By the end of this session, if you know nothing else, you will be able to raise your hands proudly and say war is the health of the state. So uh, a more kind of evocative way this was put was by James Madison. This was the tagline of my in my uh, email for many years, and so I've sort of committed to memory of all enemies of public liberty. War is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germs of every other. No nation can preserve its liberty in the midst of continual warfare. Um, that is one of the, the earlier expressions of this. But if you really think about it, right, war made the state, and the state made war. That's another expression. If you think about why states exist in the first place, they were created to provide physical security to the parties, to, the, to people who, who chose to be governed. And yet there is this tension. Right? Because we want the state to be able to protect us, but we are appropriately fearful of the state, of the state's successes. Another way this is expressed, uh, Ron Hamoy in the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism explains, individualism flourishes during peacetime, but clashes with the collectivism, regimentation, and herd mentality that war fosters. Right? So it's not just... It's not just that the state gets bigger, which it does, uh, but it's also about how we as citizens view our relationship between us and the state, right? And so that also changes in wartime. Milton Friedman said it. It's about a year before he died in an interview with a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle. War is a friend of the state. At the time of war, government will take powers and do things that it would not ordinarily do. I think... If you just think, just any memory from a recent war uh, or a distant one, it's obvious, right? The state grows during wartime. Uh, but this is the crucial point, that government grows during wartime and almost never returns those powers back to the people when the crisis abates, when the guns fall silent. This is what Bob Higgs called the ratchet effect. Um, so many other ways this is expressed. One of my other favorite books is called War and the Rise of the State by Bruce Porter. Uh, and, and he talks about this in the context of 
the founding of the Republic. Um, perhaps most importantly, James Madison. His, points, his views on this point were very well known. A standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. Um, and then he reminded them that the means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Foreign danger. He went on, again, reminding his fellows of the history. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. So I think the sentiments of the founders were fairly well known. Madison, of course, was, was a bit too young to have fought in the Revolutionary War, but George Washington, we all have heard of him, I think. Um, he said this. Among the many kernels of wisdom in his farewell address, he advised his countrymen to avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments which, under any form of government, are inauspicious to liberty and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to Republican liberty. Thus, the founders placed very strict limits on the one branch of government that they thought was most prone to warfare. That's the executive branch. Um, and Madison explained the rationale uh, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive branch is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It, the Constitution, has accordingly with studied care vested the question of war in the legislature. During the constitutional ratification debates, this was a key point of contention between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, between the advocates for the new Constitution and those who were opposed. And one of the key defenders of this Constitution, James Wilson, to the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention, said, the system will not hurry us to war. It is calculated to guard against it. It will not be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress. Later, Madison claimed that this clause, the clause vesting the war powers in the legislature, was the most important in the entire document. So, so far, I've just laid out why libertarians, unlike conservatives and liberals, who sometimes see the growth of the state as a, as a beneficial side effect of war, libertarians are always jealous of this, nervous about this. And I've also tried to convey that among the founding generation, uh, this sense of trying to constrain the state's ability to wage war as a means for constraining the state was foundational to the document that still, thankfully, barely, governs us. So that's, the, that's where we get to today. And, and I think that this point bears repeating, uh, and I'm actually somewhat encouraged. I might actually be kind of introducing some new material to those who haven't really pondered this. But people could say that today it's different, right? This is not... Um, this is not 1787 or 1789 or 1800, et cetera. Um, some people understand that war is harmful to liberty, 
but they could claim that preparing for war in order to, to prevent a war or waging one now to stop a worse one later is consistent with libertarian principles. They would argue, this, this group of people would argue, the threats this time are real and grave and gathering, grave and gathering, you might have heard that. The fear of the growth of the state, they argue, is overblown and misplaced. Well, I hope that at least the second part of that argument is less true among this audience than it would be among the, the random people that you find on the street in, on Massachusetts Avenue, right? That we are always fearful of the state, and we, we will not lightly put aside those things, but it's still possible to say that the threats that we're facing today are worth relaxing these fears or setting aside these fears temporarily. I think not. My colleagues think not uh, here at Cato. We say, and I say today, that the burden of proof in war is still on those making the case for war, not those making the case against. Precisely because many of the things that the advocates for war claim are grave and serious threats, I think are overblown. I also think they <clears throat> misperceive how U.S., the United States acting as the world's policeman, which it does and has, uh, contributes to other countries' unwillingness to defend themselves and creates a whole host of problems, including moral hazard, which we understand in different contexts, and also enormous costs on us as American taxpayers. Um, and so I just sort of, I call that welfare by another name, right? We are subsidizing other countries. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. But here's the other point. When the interventionists claim that a particular threat that's coming from abroad is greater than anything we could or would do to ourselves, I think they have a pretty uh, hard case to make. Right? I mean, even a non-war war against terrorism, the one that doesn't involve mass conscription or confiscatory taxation like we had in World War II, right? The war that we have fought against terrorists since 9-11 has, after all, entailed the wholesale violation of basic civil rights and an erosion of the rule of law, from George W. Bush's torture memos to Barack Obama's secret kill list. So I think that in this war, this modest war, this barely a war to most of us who won't be fighting it, it still has led to the growth of the state. And so for the balance of my time today, I'm going to try and convince you of that fact. I'm going to try to convince you that the United States is, or at least should be, in a strong position to implement a, what I call a libertarian foreign policy, a restrained foreign policy, uh, and I think one that harkens back to the founder's vision. Uh, but even though I will argue that we should do that, I'm not going to argue that it's easy. Nothing we do is, right? Nothing worth doing is easy. So let's go back to the foreign policy founded, that was supported by the founders. This is another passage from the, the farewell address. Separated as we are by a world of water from other nations, if we are wise, we shall surely avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. That was, the, that was his vision. And then he said this, the great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. 
a more succinct variation of this is Thomas Jefferson from the first inaugural address. He said he would pursue a foreign policy of peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. That was 1801. So let's consider what these gentlemen were looking at in 1801. In 1801, the British were still in Canada, of course. Uh, the Spanish were in, in Florida. Not very well, by the way. Not doing a very good job in Florida, but holding on nonetheless. Then you had this circumstance, which as a Navy guy, it's sort of near and dear to my heart, which I just ask you to ponder for a moment. We had this situation in the early 1800s where if you were a merchant seaman, if you were an American that set to set sail on a whaling vessel or a, some kind of trading ship, and a British man of war sidles alongside you and says, you there, you, your last name is Smith. You must be a deserter from the British Navy. You're coming with us. Or the French to say, oh, you there, you look French. What's your name? Sincere. Oh, yes, yes, you're, no, no, no. You must be a deserter from the French Navy. You're coming with us. Happened all the time. And then on top of all that, we had these folks, Native Americans, who were understandably, I think we can say in retrospect, a little anxious to halt the encroachments of these white Anglos, etc. And so you had constant attacks on the frontier every day. And yet, these men, when they created this document with, the, with I think, some quite significant restrictions on the state on the state's ability to wage war, confronting this kind of scenario, they still tilted towards constraining the state. And it worked for the first 150 or so years of, the, of American history, give or take a few. Here's where we are today. Here's where we are today. Now, this picture is a little dated. You'll note, for example, do I have a pointer on here? I do. Okay, well, the, the little blurb about uh, being in Afghanistan, those numbers have come down. We now have about, um, it's about <clears throat> 6,800 in Afghanistan right now, probably going to come down to 5,000 or so, 5,500 by the end of the year. But the rest of this picture is pretty accurate, right? And think about where we came from, 13 tiny states tucked along the eastern seaboard to here. Now, again, it's a little misleading. Just because Australia is covered all yellow does not mean the United States of America occupies Australia, okay? Just to be clear, we're just demonstrating that today, in the present world, the United States has bases in approximately, um, well, we're not entirely sure. This is what we do know. Yeah, it's unfortunate we're not entirely This is what we do know. There are about 5,000 military sites U.S. military sites of all shapes and sizes in the world, 5,000. That's a little misleading because a military site could be a building or a radar station. Okay, so let's, let's drill down a little bit more. Um, most of these, of course, about 4,200 are in the United States in our territories, about 81 in the U.S. territories. But there are still at least 550 active military facilities worldwide, Others put the number closer to 660 or so, so 550, 600, something like that. This includes 179 facilities, uh, uh, major sites in Germany, and more than 100 in Japan. 
and more than 80 in South Korea. There are approximately at any one time 300,000 active duty military personnel in war zones and forward U.S. military facilities outside of the United States. And there are still, 70 years after the end of World War II, 38,000 military personnel in Germany and nearly 50,000 in Japan. And there were over 29,000 in South Korea as of the end of March 2015. So that's the, the global footprint. That's where we are and what we're doing all around the world. Oh, and by the way, I shouldn't forget my friends in the Navy. Over 100 Navy ships at any one time are at sea around the world. The Air Force has hundreds of fighters, hundreds of fuelers, and the Army and Navy combined have about 3,400 attack aircraft. It used to be said that the second largest Air Force in the world was that of the United States Navy. Um, here's what it means in terms of spending. <clears throat> uh, the United States accounts for about 38% of global military spending. Uh, China is second, but many of our allies make up a considerable portion of the rest. Um, and it has come down as a share of global spending, uh, but we still remain the largest spender by a, by a very wide margin. And of course, it's hard to capture the scale of US military dominance purely as a matter of dollars and cents, because the money that we've invested and the talent that we've invested in this force makes it the, the greatest fighting force in the world by a factor of, I don't know, five, 10 more. Okay? Why do we spend so much? Well, because we do too much, too much, in my opinion. Um, I think a lot of what we spend, and too much, is, a, is that's a judgment call, right? That's subjective. Because I think too much of what we spend isn't essential for U.S. national security. Think about it, right? This is, again, where, where we kind of join forces with conservatives among us, and we say, here, we agree that one of the core functions of government, we would argue perhaps the only legitimate function of government is to provide for the common defense. And this is where we part ways with people on the left. They think of all these sorts of things. You know, I've looked at that document. You've seen it. You have it in your packet there, right? Uh, I've searched high and low for references to how much a farmer is to be paid for a bushel of corn or how much a doctor is to charge for an appendectomy. I've looked and I cannot find it in the document. But this part is easy to find. We all agree. And it's not unique to the U.S. Constitution. It is foundational to the whole principle of government, the common defense. But here's the problem. A lot of what we define as necessary for our defense, it's in fact highly contentious. There are serious differences of opinion. I think in particular there are at least, at least four, maybe not quite, we'll get to that in a minute, um, that guide what it is we ask our military to do under the guise of providing for the common defense, what people say is necessary for us to be secure. Uh, the first is that counterterrorism requires nation building. Uh, coin is what the coin, counterinsurgency, that's what the military folks call it. And they believe that we can, we can be good at it. We, the United States, can master this. Um, they believe that security threats are imminent. 
and require an urgent and persistent presence everywhere around the world. Uh, there's a sense that these alliances that we have actually reduce our defense burden rather than increase it. And lastly, that there is value in being promise inter paris, right? The primacy, the best and the greatest by a huge margin. There's value in that all in and of itself. Well, I'll tell you, I've been doing this for 12 and a half years now, and it, it sometimes feels like I'm rolling a rock up a hill and it rolls right back down on me, same day. But I gotta say that this idea that counterterrorism requires nation building, that's sort of fallen in, in kind of low regard over the last few years. Experience in Iraq, experience in Afghanistan, and I do think this is one of those areas where we reach out to our friends on the right and say, for goodness sake, you don't trust the U.S. government's ability to deliver mail <laughs> from, from this place to another building across town, which is why we used to rely on bike messengers. Now, of course, we just use email, right? You don't, you, you don't trust this government to deliver the mail in this country, and yet you trust this government to deliver democracy 8,000 miles away in a country that... You don't speak the language, and you're not really welcome, by the way. It doesn't sit very well. I gave that speech a couple times to the CPAC conference, and it sort of had them kind of, <laughs> kind of wriggling in their chair a little bit. It's like, oh, gosh. That, uh. right? Or in National Review, that was a fun one. Write an article in National Review. Hey, gang, nation building? No, 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 no. Conservatives don't believe in that. Now, if you're a community organizer from Chicago, eh, all right. You might believe in that stuff, but come on. So anyway, we made some progress there. That's the good news. The bad news is we still have three bad, bad ideas that are kind of messing up our foreign policy. Um, and I'm just going to focus on two today, and then we get into the questions. Um, the first is this one, that, that the security threats we are confronting today are imminent and urgent and grave, and they require a constant forward military presence. It's not enough to have the strongest military in the world prepared to go at a moment's notice anywhere in the world. We need to be out and about, stopping conflict before it happens. Well, I would remind you that some of the people that we celebrate, rightly, were, were sensitive to this problem. Um, whoops, sorry. I should give uh, Madison his due before I get to Mencken. Uh, Madison said, Perhaps it is a universal truth. The loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger real or pretended from abroad. I remind you of that passage from earlier in my presentation. And, and Madison knew this. And they were very sensitive to that in crafting the Constitution and how they were, they were to sell it. But Mencken did have it a bit more, uh, well, Mencken-ish, as you would imagine. How many people here know H.L. Mencken? Good, 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 good. Okay. The whole aim of practical politics, he says, is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. Right? That's what he thought. And again, this wasn't just about foreign threats. This was about domestic threats or just domestic problems. You may go hungry. You may be thrown out of your home. Hence, the government is there to save you from this distress. Well. I ask you, think about this. This is widespread. Widespread belief that the threats today, this time, are real. This is not just a case of, and, and General Dempsey, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
uh, he was fairly outspoken on this point. Jim Inhofe, uh, senator from Oklahoma. I don't remember a time in my life where the world has been more dangerous and the threats more diverse. I should point out that Senator Inhofe was born before World War II, so that's quite a statement right there. Um, but he, but he said it. Uh, more recently, of course, the crisis du jour is ISIS or ISIL or Daesh, the Islamic State. Uh, many names goes by many names, and and again, you have this bipartisan. Diane Feinstein, Lindsey Graham, they are coming here, invaded by a radical Islamic army. I haven't seen their Navy yet, uh, or 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 their uh, well, frankly, their Air Force. Yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, maybe they're good swimmers. Um, let me say this because I don't, I don't want to overstate this. Okay. Yes, the world is a dangerous place. The world has always been a dangerous place. Is it the most dangerous it has ever been? No. Categorically, no. Okay. Your chances of being killed a violent death prematurely of all types, not just from war, but by murder, are at the lowest point in human history. Okay. Ponder that for a minute. Okay. And that applies to the whole planet. We here in the United States still do have the benefit of living behind two wide oceans, between two weak, friendly neighbors, more or less, we can debate that, um, and, uh, and we have a government that actually works some of the time to do what it's supposed to do some of the time, which is to keep us safe, okay? So I don't think it is accurate to say that we are living in the most dangerous time, and so we're pushing back. This is our work, a, a dangerous world we have outside, uh, policy report, uh, it's just sort of a short version of that. That's one of the things that we've done recently. We've gotten an, a decent amount of coverage on that. The other misconception that we've done a fair amount of work on here at Cato is this idea that the alliances we have around the world make it easier for us to secure ourselves at low cost. Okay? Uh, we think the opposite. Here's a couple ways to look at this. So if you look at our allies, the major allies, you kind of lump NATO all together, uh, South Korea, which actually spends a, a relatively, uh, relative to other allies, a fair amount as a portion of the GDP, or Japan, which traditionally has spent about 1% of GDP on defense. You can see there's a huge disparity between what the United States spends and what uh, they spend. And again, on a per capita basis, as you control for population, the average American spends somewhere between uh, three to eight times more than that of our allies. Okay, so there's a huge burden-sharing problem here, which is, which is well-known. It's, it's, uh, it's long-standing. And then we, this year, we, we, we decided to drill down on this question of NATO, just the NATO members. And there's a couple different ways to do it. If you think about this, we have actually added as many NATO members into the alliance after the end of the Cold War as we had in before the Cold War. And we're just sort of curious. It's like, I wonder if these new NATO members behave differently than the old ones do. And not really. As you can see, there's not a huge disparity, right, between what they spend, especially as a percentage of GDP. Because a lot of the post-Cold War members are, are relatively less affluent than the founding members, like, you know, uh, uh, the UK and France and then later Germany, you know. So on a per capita basis, the, 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 uh, the new members pay less. But on a, on a percentage of GDP basis, it's about the same and still well, well less than the United States. And by the way, just so you can take this away with your friends, if you want, 
pick these up later. I have the, this chart on a card, fits in your jacket pocket or in the purse for the ladies, whatnot. And you can take this and share with your friends. Uh, and, I, and I encourage you to do that. And then I have the older version. This is the one we did two years ago, which shows what we spend relative to the rest of the world. It also, this one, this one also shows a little bit about kind of the history of our spending relative to where we were during the Cold War. And you'll see that our military spending is a, both as a share of, certainly in, in real dollar terms, remains very, very high in historical terms in the United States. Um, and here's the problem that I see again as libertarians. What, what do our allies do with the money that they save that they might otherwise have spent on their military? Do they do libertarian sort of things with it? Do they do small state sort of things with it? No. They, they build big states, generous welfare states. That's what they're doing. So I hope this also makes you squirm in your seats. What we're doing by paying for their defense is subsidizing their welfare states. They thank you very much. Okay? Now, let me just step back for a minute, okay? Because I think it's, it's not entirely fair to look at this as a, snap, a snapshot at this point in history and not put ourselves in the position of the men, mostly men, who crafted this after the end of the Second World War. Think about it. They were desperately afraid that the countries of Western Europe and especially and also Japan uh, and to, to a lesser extent the other East Asian countries after World War II were so completely devastated by war that they would not be able to build up a defense against the Soviet Union and just a few years later communist China. And more importantly, perhaps or as important, they didn't want them to. They worried not just about their physical insecurity, but the sort of internal uh, rot that was going on in the political systems of the, of, of the European democracies, in, especially in Western Europe. They didn't want them diverting attention to military spending at a time when you had socialists, or worse, making the case for more generous social spending. Right? So this is a way to kind of fight against that. And it worked. We agreed to defend them. They agreed to let us. That was the deal in 1950 and 1980 and still. So what I'm going to say is, had I been alive at the time as a historian, I've studied it and kind of passed judgment on it. I say, yes, all other factors being equal, this was a good call. Okay? It was debatable, but still a good call. The right decision to make during the Cold War when we were confronting a common enemy that actually had real capabilities and a navy and an air force and a vast army that was lodged, after all, in Eastern Europe. But somewhere along the line, these countries grew rich. GDP of the European Union combined is greater than that of the United States, of course, still, in spite of all their troubles. Okay. So we agreed to defend them, and they agreed to let us. That's still the deal. And I don't think it's a very good one. So we close with this. We still leave time for, for Q&A. Even if I had my wish, and we had successfully peeled away some of these misconceptions that I think are are altering U.S. foreign policy, pushing it away from where it would be, we would still have a vast military. Think about it. If you confine yourself to a strict definition of what the U.S. military is for, to provide for the common defense of these United States, that's a vast swath of territory. 
and lots of ocean, because after all, we have Hawaii and we're not giving it back and they don't seem anxious to leave, right? So I grew up in Maine, that's where I'm from. I still consider my, my mom and dad are from there still. And, and, and as a young boy, I was entitled to the same protections under the Constitution as people in Hawaii, right? So you need a big military for that. I'm not disputing that. You need probably the largest in the world by a factor of, I don't know, two or three. The trouble is that a military that's that big and just waiting to be used gets sort of bored. And more importantly, and it's not the military, I don't blame the military, the policymakers who have that instrument at the ready get a little bored and they say, ah, we won't probably need to use it for this narrow set of things that the Constitution says, so let's find other reasons to use our military around the world. After all, we don't really diminish our ability to do all the other things we do because we have so much excess capacity. I think that would be true even if I got my wish, and the military was probably, I don't know, 20% smaller than it is today, give or take. It's come down a little bit, of course. So we need rules. We need guidelines that limit policymakers in likelihood to resort to use of force, to send U.S. forces in harm's way. There are four that I came up with. I think you'll see these are not particularly revolutionary. Um, first, I think we should define when we use our military and national interest grounds somewhere along the line. There has to be a compelling U.S. national security interest at stake when we risk the lives of American servicemen and women abroad. Okay? Now, we can have a debate in this country about what those interests are and should be, and I welcome that. Okay? But the moment someone stands up to me and says, we have no interest at stake in this conflict, this is purely a matter of principle or morality, I say, hold on a second. And I'm not alone. Okay? The evidence clearly shows that the American people believe that the U.S. military exists mainly to defend and protect this, these United States. That's what they believe. And so I think most Americans would agree when we send troops into harm's way, there should be a compelling U.S. national interest at stake. Related, there should be strong public support for the mission. Do not send our troops into harm's way if, you do not, if we do not think that they are going to be able to complete their mission and have the public support them back at home. Okay? There is a mechanism for this. We don't have to resort to American Idol calling in on a phone number or dancing with the stars or things like that, right? The mechanism is the Constitution of the United States, which vests the war powers with the people's house. Legislature closest to the people. Don't have to create anything new. We merely have to carry out the Constitution. Maybe the members of, the Const members of Congress who take an oath to defend it might read it and do what they say to do. Related? Related. When you say you have strong public support, the mission has to be clearly defined. Because we're not just going to send our military somewhere and say, well, they'll figure it out when they get there. right? Or we think, we hope, that once the military is there, the public will continue to support them because the public, loving the military as they do, as they should, I would argue, they aren't willing to just sort of pull, you know, cut and run. right? You hear that all the time. So let's try to define the, the mission ahead of time. Let's try to figure out what exactly are we asking our military to do, and is that reasonably achievable, right? 
Or does it rely on some magical, mystical fairy dust, great things happen, and then democracy, right? If you see, if you, see you know, the sort of, it, you know, the, 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 the formula written up on the wall, and you say, send troops here, then something happens, and good country emerges, you might want to say, show your work in the middle part here. What, what's going on here exactly? And the last thing, and I hope this is fairly banal, is that just because we, the United States of America, have the capacity to wage war anywhere in the world at any time for any reason or none whatsoever, it really should be a last resort. This is not a new concept, for goodness sake. Okay? But precisely because, if you think about this, right? because the United States is so safe and secure, because even the ability, let alone the inclination, of someone to retaliate against us for taking action against them that they perceive as unjust, unjust it's, it's not likely to happen. We are extraordinarily safe and secure. <clears throat> and so what, I ask you, what constrains our inclination to use our military? It's not our capacity to do so, because our capacity to do so, especially in short-term, you know, specific ways, is virtually limitless. We dropped bombs on Iraq, and earlier than that, in, in Bosnia, we dropped bombs on Bosnia and Iraq from planes that took off from Missouri and returned to Missouri. So we can do it. What constrains it? Us, you. That's it. That's all we've got because the capacity to do so is limitless. And it doesn't cost anything, because we'll just charge it to the next generation. Um, <clears throat> all right. So I've spelled out these criteria. They're not particularly revolutionary. They come from, like, Casper Weinberger, who was uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Defense. His uh, senior military aide at the time was Colin Powell. So now it's known as the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine. Colin Powell, when he was... Uh, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and National Security Advisor kind of modified it a little bit himself. I say, if you think these criteria are too narrow, or they don't allow for other things you want our military to do, I say, fine. Come up with some criteria of your own, and we'll debate those. But let me tell you that right now, there are no criteria. There are none. We go where we want, when we want, and the circumstances are nearly indistinguishable, one from the next. And so it's not unreasonable that this town is inundated with people coming here and saying, please save us, because you saved them 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And we say, how do we differentiate one of those interventions from one of the next interventions? It becomes very, very hard. It becomes very difficult to discern any sort of pattern after the fact. So we need to constrain the ability of the state to wage war, our willingness to wage war, if for no other reason than war is the health of the state. And with that, I'll take your questions. So I, um, I hope I didn't seem like I was going too fast there, but oh, good, good. I was, I was worried that they were going to give me a question. Let's go to the left first. You, sir, you, to my left. Yes, go ahead, Scott. 
The economist, no, Sean, wait, Sean, Sean. Yeah, I'm Sean, Sean Hernandez uh, at UC Santa Barbara Economics. The uh, economist Jacob Viner thought atomic bombs were pretty much the best thing since sliced bread because they were shifting the supply curve of defense to the right. Um, and I just want to, well, also nuclear weapons seem to be the least interventionist form of military power. So have you ever written that we should consider trading off our massive conventional technologies for um, nuclear modernization? in order to accomplish our libertarian foreign policy um, goals? A good question. I laugh only because, yes, as a matter of fact, I published a major study with my colleague Ben Friedman and Matt Fay uh, two years ago that talked about nuclear modernization. It's called the end of overkill question mark. Uh, what we say is that we could maintain a credible, capable nuclear deterrent, and, and we should, but we can do so at far less cost. Because right now, the nuclear deterrent, for those of you who don't know, it relies on, it's called the triad. So it includes uh, missile launching submarines, it includes land-based ICBMs, and it includes bombers that, that are capable of dropping nuclear weapons. It's called the triad. And it appears, our, our research on this suggests that the triad was probably not even necessary when it was created, but it's certainly not necessary now. Technological change has allowed you to maintain a credible deterrent with even just a single leg of the triad, I would argue, for submarines, but we can have a debate about what that should be. So to answer your question, we can modernize. We should modernize. I do not believe we should modernize all three legs because I don't think it's necessary to maintain a credible deterrent, and it would be extraordinarily costly. The last point is this. I haven't mentioned it in my study, okay? When the founders of this great nation thought about the space between them and everyone else, and they thought about the oceans, and, the, and the, the, they thought fairly weak neighbors relative to if you were you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the Netherlands at the time. Um, nuclear weapons also changed the game, okay? And I think in a good way. Uh, and again, not that, I, not, not that I love these things, but if you think about it, they're very good at one thing, and really only one thing, and that is deterring an attack against you. They are very poor for nuclear coercion or blackmail or things like that. There's virtually no evidence in the history of nuclear weapons 70 years on that they have been effective as, as, a, as a coercive mechanism, but they seem to be quite effective as a deterrent mechanism. So that does lower the cost of our conventional deterrent by relying a bit more heavily on nuclear deterrence. Yes. Thank you. Good question. Hey, Sir. My name is Bill Rickards. William. Bill. Yep. Yes. I'm a journalism student from Temple University. So I think it was President Eisenhower that warned in his farewell address uh, about the military-industrial complex. Yes. Um, do you think that the way that war has been used so uh, forcefully by the United States military, in your opinion, it's an overuse, um, do you think that is due to just uh, misguided policies, or do you believe that war has been used as a racket? Uh, Smedley Butler said that long before Dwight Eisenhower did. Very good. Very good, Bill. Um, let me say this. I'm a, I'm a huge Ike fan, um, which is disconcerting to my friend and mentor, Ted Carpenter, who was a, who was a Bob Taft guy. Uh, I think there is more than enough evidence to support President Eisenhower's contention that the concentration of power in the military-industrial complex was and had misshapen U.S. foreign policy. If you read the full, con full text of the speech, it is enormously kind of, it's so rich, that document is so rich in kind of insight and history. However, I generally do not argue that in making the case, you'll note that I never mentioned it in this speech, for example, because 
it is better to attack an argument on the merits and not on the motivations of those making the argument. Okay, that's a that's kind of one of our watch, kind of one of our kind of mantras here at Cato. Okay, and so when you start going down that road, you are at risk of impugning the motives or questioning the motives of those who argue the opposite. And I generally don't do that. And I try to take them at their word and at face value for the arguments they make that we need to nation build, that we need to build security, we need to have alliances, all the arguments they make, and the, and my, uh, the people around town who say that all the time. But it's also true, it's incontrovertible, that the balance of forces intellectually in this town is heavily weighted to the interventionist side and virtually non-existent on the non-interventionist side, aside from this little structure at 10th and Massachusetts. Okay? So, to observe that, to make that observation, is kind of based on the facts, and that's as far as I go and not impugning the motives. Does that answer your question? So I think it's a very good question. I think there's a lot to it, but I believe the stronger way to argue these is on the merits of the argument, not on what may be motivating them and sustaining them. Great question. Thank you. Sir, yes, Jonathan. Uh, my name is John. I'm a math econ major at American University. Um, regarding Daesh or the Islamic State or whatever we want to call them today. Yes. Um, first of all, in terms of the, the first rule that you proposed for our foreign policy, do you believe there is a compelling national security interest behind intervention against them or some type of policy against right. them? And if you don't, yeah. would you consider it, I would say, inhumane not to do something with them? Well, again, when you get into the argument about inhumane, then it's a se it, that's a separate set of, and again, let's have that arg argument, but let's, let's set that off to the side for, for a moment. Mm -hmm. on, on purely national security grounds, okay, I think that uh, a mission against ISIL uh, doesn't entirely pass all these tests. So it probably, I've, I've argued this, it is not worth trying to send US military personnel back into Iraq and into Syria to fix their broken politics. Mm. Because that's the mission that isn't clearly defined and I contend cannot be, okay? Is that to solve this problem definitively is a political solution that we cannot impose, that we do not have, we do not know. Mm. So there is no military mission that can be clearly defined. There is some public support even for boots on the ground, but there's quite strong public support for doing something short of boots on the ground. And so I think what we're doing right now, using our military capability, but not forces on the ground, small numbers right now, mm -hmm. um, is, would probably meet my threshold of, okay, this is worth doing, but it's very important for me that we don't allow this mission to spiral out of control, that we don't misconstrue what we're trying to accomplish here. We are keeping them under duress, but here's the thing I like to say. ISIS has lots of enemies, and we want to keep it that way, okay? Uh, and, 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 and I mean, they really do because they're brutal SOBs, okay? And, and so, and, and, and so they, they have a lot of enemies, um, and so helping those enemies contain them and eventually put them under pressure and, and, and restrict them um, is useful. But, but we shouldn't be under any illusions that we're going to solve the underlying problems in, in Iraq and, Af and, and Syria that are causing them. Thank Good. you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tammy Winter, and I am a junior at Southern Methodist University studying accounting, economics, and law. And so when we talk about endless war and kind of our recent war failures, we, we like to talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, but we always seem to forget about Libya. And then <laughs> recently <I don't. laughs> looking at... <laughs> 
Good question. I, I, Go I on. Because, because it's the Obama-Clinton war, but I'm looking. I've been recently looking at the EU migrant crisis. Yes. And so we have thousands of people coming from North Africa and other places. Do you think, and in conversation with friends, I like to. I personally think that this is a direct or even an indirect result of our interventionist military policy. Yes. Um, but I can never get my friends and even family members to kind of connect the dots. <laughs> and I don't know if you agree with this or you think that there's something else driving this. <clears throat> um, let's start at the beginning, okay? The reason why the United States got involved in Libya in March of 2011 in the first place was because our allies were experiencing a refugee crisis, okay? Mostly Italy, Spain, okay, Southern Europe. And that was the number one thing driving them. They had, they had a legitimate national security interest. Okay? Then on top of that, there was the moral component. Okay? Um, the president failed to, define, to meet any of these criteria in making the case for war. And of course, he didn't make the case for war to the American people. He made the case to the United Nations and said the UN Security Council authorization essentially superseded president, the, the Congress. Congress had no role to play whatsoever, which I think is absurd. So let's start there and say this war was, was, was begun and, and fought under false pretenses and for the wrong reasons. Okay? Today, you have utter chaos in Libya, and it's, it's spread not just, again, you have the continuing refugee problem, arguably as bad or worse than it was before, and then you've had uh, other countries in the region, Mali, for example, which was a fragile democracy and now is not. Okay, now ruled by a military dictatorship. So the net effect of the Libyan intervention is the loss of one democracy. That's the net effect. Okay, because we still don't have a democracy in Libya, of course, and we may never have it, or certainly not anytime soon. So I think, again, weighing the merits of this intervention on the terms defined by the advocates, it utterly fails. Now they would say, well, don't, don't focus on the past, right? We have to look on the, and we hear this all the time, right? Oh, that's, you're looking backwards. You're looking in the rear view mirror of history. We need to look forward. And I say, yes, and looking forward, what's going to change? What will our intervention, a new intervention, renewed intervention, with more energy, with, what exactly is going to happen? Again, if you can spell out for me a scenario that contributes to advancing U.S. national security interests, that can win strong public support, if you can can create such a mission, I say, go for it. Haven't heard it from anybody, from anybody. And so um, I don't forget about the Libya war. What frustrates me, go back and remember this, how many people have heard of Benghazi? <laughs> okay, here's the tricky question. When did you first hear of Benghazi? In what context? In what context, right? The attack on the U.S. Embassy. No, that is not where you should know about Benghazi. The re Benghazi was the reason for going to war in the first place, supposedly. That, that Muammar Gaddafi's forces were closing in on a rebel stronghold in Benghazi, and, they, and, and Gaddafi was said to have said, even though this is in dispute, we will destroy them, we will crush them like rats, hunt them down like rats. And so the pressure on Benghazi was used as a justification for the war in the first place. Okay? So don't start at the attack on the U.S. consulate, which was a, a result, a, a function of the fact that you have a complete breakdown of law and order in Libya. Go back to the original justification. So Benghazi has double meaning. The only person who seems to understand that, I will give credit where credit is due, is Rand Paul, who opposed the war at the outset and likes reminding Hillary Clinton that she was responsible for both.
Ben Gaza. So. Anyway, good question. Uh, yes, sir, you are Tucker. Yes. Tucker, hey, Tucker. Hi. I, I recognize you. Um, you I'm an familiar. intern here at yes, Cato. Yes, yes, I knew that, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering how much credence you give to the argument made by uh, Philip Tetlock in his book, Expert Political Judgment, um, where he points out that experts do only slightly better than chance when it comes to predicting the outcome of foreign interventions. Yeah. And the implication of this is that even if uh, your criteria are met, um, perhaps we still ought to prefer non-interventionism because there could be unintended consequences that no one predicted. And um, yes. being averse to intervention is the only way to not fall prey to our own uh, fatal conceit. So that's a great question. Uh, I did not seed this in the audience, even though Tucker is a Cato intern. Um, the book is called it's, uh, Expert Political Judgment. This is a book by Philip Tetlock. I am actually reading it now for the first time, but I'm well familiar with its, its findings. And it's fairly disconcerting for those of us who are in the foreign policy prognostication business, because we as an entire class are less reliable than dart-throwing chimps. <laughs> OK? Uh, as a tongue-in-cheek, one of my favorite blogs is now entitled Dart-Throwing Chimp, and those people don't take themselves too seriously. Here's what I will say. It is appropriate that you measure effectiveness in some capacity, but it's hard because clever foreign policy analysts are uh, careful not to make uh, falsifiable statements or statements that after the fact can be said, you said A and B happened. And there's a no, 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 no. A actually did happen, you just defined it wrong. Or, no, no, lowercase a happened, I, you know, it's close enough sort of thing. So it's very, very hard. But your point is well taken. And I don't think Tetlock ever intended this. There's no evidence he's a libertarian, no evidence that he read Hayek or anything like that. But there's a whole lot of Hayek inside of that theory, right? Unintended consequences, problem of knowledge, right? Prevention, the entire idea of prevention we find to be absurd. Right? Because prevention implies that you know something worse is going to happen in the future, and therefore, if you take action now, you will make it better. Most of us don't really believe that. And, and again, in the, state, in the context of the state, fine, take your vitamins. Right? But this is different. When the state takes action, because they say, our acting now is going to prevent something worse later, we say, what? No. Show me the evidence. I'll show you lots of evidence that says exactly the opposite. So I think Tetlock fits in with this broader message that we have. Again, we are in the Hayek Auditorium. We should give credit where credit is due. And so I, I think you've linked that together very nicely. Well done. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hi, I know you. Michael. Hey, Michael. Hi. How you doing? Fine, thanks. Good. Uh, could you speak a little bit as to how you see what appears to be a millennial generation who has far less tolerance and yes. far less interest in wanting to see an interventionist strategy? Yes. We. We published a study last month uh, here at Cato, which I'm exceedingly proud of, by Trevor Thrall, who's a Cato adjunct. He's a full-time professor at George Mason University, and one of his graduate students, Eric Gopner, that studies for the first time, to our knowledge, the kind of distinct attitudes towards foreign policy that the millennial generation have. And for those of you who don't know, and, and, and there are many millennials here, but many of you are not millennials, millennials are basically people born between 1980 and 1997 or so. 
this means people who do not have a, uh, a strong memory of the Cold War or none whatsoever, okay? Many of them were born after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and here's perhaps the most disconcerting thing for, for some of you who aren't millennials. They're the largest age cohort in the country and they're growing every day 87 million people, okay? 87 million. I'm not one, so I'm also nervous, okay? Um, <laughs> But here's the thing, this is what we think we know about them. The, the formative experience for them uh, was 9-11, but also, and it appears more so, Iraq and Afghanistan. So, they look on those two wars, as do most of the other generations, as kind of somewhere between tragic mistakes or botched, well-intended, something or other and they don't want the next war to look like those two wars, okay? And so that deeply informs how they view intervention. If something looks like it, sort of like Iraq, or could become like Iraq, they're sort of like, mm, mm, no. But on the flip side, and again, I have to be honest because it doesn't entirely conform to my, my opinions, they appear to be slightly more supportive of the kinds of targeted interventions, small-scale interventions, humanitarian-style interventions that don't look like Iraq. So convincing the millennial generation to support your foreign policies really hinges on saying, my intervention is going to look like the good intervention in Bosnia and Kosovo, not like the bad interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's what I predict is going to play out as they get older, assume positions in power. One of the things we know about studying what's called a cohort effect, this is a, each age group. You think about it, if, if you, the people who are like you in age have a similar set of experiences and, and historical memory and things like that, and, and what happens is in the formative period, about 14 to 24 years of age, you get certain ideas and you don't change your mind, okay? And again, this sort of belies what, what are you all doing here, okay, you, all, you already agree with us. By about the time you're 45 or so, hard to change someone's mind. But in that formative period, that's where they're very, they're, they, they kind of take on board these things, and that's what we believe that the millennial generation will continue to carry these beliefs throughout their lifetime. So, excellent question. I, I recommend it very highly. Um, it's the white paper. It's on the Cato website, Millennial Generation by Thrall and Gopner. I can get you a copy, too, if, you, if you're interested. Thanks for the question, Michael. Uh, sir, I know you. My name's Devin Watkins. I'm an intern yes. here. Um, I understand not having kind of mutual defense agreements with uh, that many other nations, but what do you think about uh, Canada and Mexico? As you said, we have big, large oceans, but not to our north and our south. Right. Um, I think, for me, uh, an alliance is, um, the key is for it to be an alliance with mutual benefits. Okay, and I think many of our alliances are not that way. M many of our alliances are too heavily, kind of the costs and risks are borne too much by us, and we are relieving or alleviating the costs and risks to our allies. I think that has long-term consequences. Um, it would be much easier in that context to say, look, 
Canada and Mexico and the United States, we really do have lots of common security interests. You know, it's very hard for the, these to diverge. Of course, they're poorer than we are, so it's harder for them to maintain a military capability. But even asking them to maintain a military capability that was commensurate with ours on a per capita basis or on a, you know, on basis of their, as a percentage of GDP, that would be useful. But unfortunately, neither, neither Canada nor, nor Mexico spend anything approaching what we do, either on a per capita basis or on a percentage of GDP. So it turns out, this is a longstanding, there's a, there's a famous essay on this many years ago by the economist uh, uh, Manker Olson and um, uh, Richard Zeckhauser that talks about whenever you have one very, very large, rich ally it is inevitable that the burden will fall on that ally. And you can try lots of different gimmicks to burden share, but at the end of the day, most of those aren't going to work. The dynamic is just so heavily in the area. So that argues to me for being, again, you just recognizing that you have to just push very, very hard against it. You need to make firm demands and certain set certain expectations. Um, uh, look, I, I, I mean that, I don't mean this cavalierly. Uh, you know, uh, Tom, when he introduced me, joked that, uh, that I'm in favor of, you know, that I kind of responsible for studying the whole world. I wish that I got to spend a little bit more time on the Western Hemisphere because that's the part of the world that I actually think is like close to us and really important. And I wish I wasn't spending so much time talking about places 8,000 miles away, which again, you just sort of have to take several leaps of logic. Uh, and so it's troubling to me that I don't spend more time talking about our, our allies and friends north and south uh, and I think it shows how we've kind of distorted our, our vision, uh, our strategic vision. We've looked too far away. We have some things to, to concern ourselves right here, closer to home. Uh, good question, though. Uh, okay, who, uh, you, sir. Hi, my name is Dan Gold. I'm, Hi. I'm a millennial, and I'm a rising freshman at Carleton College. Where are you, so, Dan? What? Where are you going to school? Um, I'm going to Carleton College in Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. So my question is, when you look at a lot of terrible organizations and conflicts like Daesh, M23 in the Congo, the Interhamway back in Rwanda in the 90s, a common theme seems to be artificially drawn borders, yeah. where you have all these different ethnicities. Artificially drawn borders. Good question, Daniel. Yeah, go ahead. So what can we do about that, or should we do nothing to kind of let those borders revert back to a more natural state where they should begin? That's an excellent question. Um, he is correct. Many of the sources of conflict reflect a um, fragile political equilibrium that is based on lines drawn on a map by people that had no knowledge about the culture on the ground, okay? Mostly the Brits, by the way. But, um, my, my, my colleague, who's, who's Irish-American, he particularly likes to point that out. Um, the trouble is... <laughs> that redrawing those borders is really tricky, okay? So, so yes, you can kind of imagine the perfect scenario where the lines fit with kind of ethnically homogenous or like-minded people or people who are willing. Again, not every state, nation state is ethnically homogenous. If you can create a political order that can sustain a multi-ethnic diaspora, that's great. Many states haven't figured that out yet. Uh, so it's tricky, okay? And even suggesting that lines may be redrawn in the future can have the perverse effect of saying, because lines will be drawn and the redrawn in the future, we need to create facts on the ground now to justify our claims to certain territories, right? So, so even suggesting that lines could be redrawn also is a source of conflict. So while you're right to identify a cause, 
I'm not convinced that a kind of the logical solution, the kind of you know, laboratory experiment solution, is actually going to make the problem better. Many of these conflicts, tragically, um, have to burn themselves out. Okay? Um, and we see it, it is tragic because in Syria, for example, it is 230,000 dead, 4 million refugees and counting, okay? and still no sign of burning out. Okay? But it's absolutely a function of the fact that these, these countries um, do not reflect a durable political order. And that's the part we should be driving to. We should drive towards that. We should understand what constitutes good governance, what constitutes legitimate governance. But we also have to have sufficient humility to know we can't make that happen, right? We can help kind of by advising, by suggesting, but the idea that we can impose it, I think, you know, that's hard to believe even at a theoretical level. And Iraq is case number one that proves at a practical level, wow, really, really hard. Great question, thank you. Yes, sir. Hello, Clint Townsend with the Cato Institute. Um, I'm hoping that you could um, speak to the distinctions between uh, a formal de formal declaration of war and uh, congressional authorization of force, yeah. and whether that would meet the demands of the Constitution uh, in entering into a conflict on the scale of, say, Iraq. Well, it's a really good question, Clint. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, for my purposes, an AUMF, an authorization to use military force, is better than nothing at all, but it's still not the same as a declaration of war. The way that the, the authorizations are worded is sort of a, it reflects kind of congressional in, uh, kind of in impotence, right? Uh, their, their willingness to sort of hand over to the President of the United States the authority to use at his or her discretion, that that is, that's anathema to me. Madison is rolling in his grave at the mere thought of that, right? Um, so, but it does move in the direction of at least acknowledging that the people have a say and the people's representatives have a responsibility to weigh in. So yes, I would rather that an authorization have formal sanction, but it would be better still if Congress actually retained its authority under the Constitution and to actually declare war or not. Good question. Thank you, Clint. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, I'm Isaac Duarte. I'm a Isaac. philosopher from the University of Arizona. Hi. Um, so it, it looks like you set out some really good uh, practical constraints on when we should go to war. I was just wondering if you could talk about moral constraints specifically. Um, should libertarians adopt like a just war theory? Right. Um, I, you certainly can argue that way. I generally don't argue that way. I try to confine myself to the kind of practical arguments that are informed by libertarianism, but since most of the time I'm speaking to audiences that are not primarily libertarian or even barely libertarian, I'm trying to argue it on practical grounds. So I can make a case on moral grounds that practically speaking, intervening in a conflict that looks really bad and you think you can make better might be a bad idea because you may make it worse, right? That's not, so that's not a moral argument, right? This is, this is sort of the, the intrinsic morality, I believe, of foreign policy realism, right? Of just a mere pragmatism. Like, does, could it work? Don't talk to me about good intentions. Don't talk to me about what you're trying to accomplish. Tell me about whether you actually can accomplish it and demonstrate to me that you have a, a, a fighting chance of making this better. Um, so that's how I usually argue it. Look, again, I go back, I mentioned uh, at the outset, that if you look at the history of the, of the 
of the movement, uh, the libertarian and conservative movements, the modern American right, uh, liber foreign policy divided libertarians from conservatives, turns out that the non-aggression principle divides libertarians from libertarians. Right? That there are genuinely pacifist libertarians who believe, even some would argue, that it's not even legitimate to retaliate against the use of force, even in, in an interpersonal context. Um, so this, too, has divided us. I think I've made clear I'm not a pacifist. I served in the military, and, and I think that in certain rare cases, the use of force is justified on practical grounds, practical national security grounds. Once you get into the moral argument, it's a whole different kettle of fish. I'm not a theologian, uh, and, and therefore I try to confine myself to the kind of the merits of the case. But an excellent question. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Hi. I'm Brooke Manville. I um, run my own consulting business here in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, if we take your vision, I was wondering if you could, uh, if you could wave a wand and say, we're going to reduce all of our spending dramatically. We're going to pull away from all the bases around the world. We're going to you know, live a Madisonian vision. What's your view of how the world would, would look and work? I mean, what would that world really look like if you think about all those things that you were criticizing suddenly being ended? <clears throat> I believe that it will look much as it does today at less cost to us, eventually. This is how it works. States have interests, security interests. Many of the states that we are currently defending have the capacity to defend themselves were they so inclined. They've chosen not to, for the most part, because they would rather that we do it for them. And again, if I were in their position, I'd do exactly the same thing. So I envision a point at which, in the future, a new equilibrium is more countries with more capability that they use mainly to defend themselves and deter attack. Okay? We, we have evolved in an important way away from the use of force as a legitimate function of, of government. Even many people dispute this. And so deterrence is still valued and self-defense is still valued, but aggression is not. And so the fear, I mean, this was a realistic fear. This understandable. Again, if I had been in the same situation, the experience with the Germans, the experience with the Japanese after World War II was people did not trust them with the ability to wage war. I'm not troubled by that any longer. I look at what has happened in Germany and Japan over this intervening 70 years. I do not see a nascent, aggressive, militaristic, nationalistic impulse that is just champing at the bit to reclaim Alsace-Lorraine or reunify the Korean Peninsula under, under Japanese colonialism. These were legitimate concerns in the 40s and 50s. They're not any longer. And so if you look just at those two extreme cases, I think those are the extreme cases. Those are the important cases. Look at other cases where you don't have a long-standing history of aggressive nationalism, even, even within the distant past, let alone the recent past. Um, is it so inconceivable that a democracy like India, a complex one to be sure, would not be capable of defending itself and its interests and policing piracy in the Indian Ocean, for example? Right now, the pre premise is that we do it, that every body of water is ours, that every <laughs> coastline is ours to defend. And so what I see in the future is countries behaving to defend themselves, and that contributes to global security. 
Here's what I see the alternative. The alternative is to stay on our current path, which is the United States as the dominant military power and the first responder to every 911 call in the world. That's what we are right now, in, in effect. It will be harder and harder to sustain that over time as our share of global wealth declines, which it will. Okay? And therefore, I'm trying to create an alternative to transition away from the world depending overwhelmingly on a single country and the taxpayers of a single country and push more of those responsibilities down. Because at the end of the day, I believe that those local responsibilities will be more effective than us trying to do it at great distances. But, but by that view, what, would you have, what was the right response after 9-11? The, the right response after 9-11 was the one that we took for two reasons. This is critical. One, this was an attack on the United States of America, not on an ally, okay? And our initial mission was very narrowly targeted on the perpetrators of those attacks and those who had harbored them, okay? It was not trying to create a new nation state in Afghanistan. That, that mission changed. So, yeah. so, so the, the initial response was the correct one, but also crucially because there was no alternative framework. We had not done the work in the 1990s to create this alternative. And so had we said to the Pakistanis or the Indians or the Russians or others in the region, hey, Afghanistan looks like a problem on your border. What are you doing? Right? We didn't have that conversation with them. In fact, in the 1990s, we said the opposite. We said, we got it covered. It's all good. We're, we're, go back to doing what you're doing. Right? And that was a huge mistake. Yeah. So once again, we have an opportunity by kind of informed by tragedy to have a new conversation with our allies and say, okay, we had a chance, we missed our chance 20 years ago, we're going to try again. And, and I think you, you will hear there are people kind of looking at the numbers, dollars and cents, looking at public sentiment here in the United States. They're nervous about our ability to sustain these commitments indefinitely. And I think there's more, more interest on the part of our allies to kind of move slowly into that space that we leave behind. Excellent question. Thank you, Brooke. Sir, yes, sir. My name's Will Duffield. I'm an intern here at the Cato Will Institute. Will is a star here at the Cato Institute. Yeah. He, he with Charles was our debater. Yes, Will, go ahead. So our current national defense strategy rests not just on spending on our military, but on buying a lot of military gear and selling it to foreign nations, some of yes. which have horrific human rights records. Yes. They jail journalists. They stone women for being raped. Um, as part of a libertarian foreign policy, should we continue to arm these sorts of regimes? Um, and if not, is there a danger in not doing so? Well, the yeah, last question. Here, here's the key. It depends on what we mean by arm, okay? The, uh, Brooke's question is important, right? If I'm arguing that other countries should have the capacity to defend themselves and that we should encourage their inclination to do so, then it is logical that they would look to U.S. arms manufacturers to be their potential suppliers with the small problem that U.S. arms manufacturers are hugely priced out of the market because they're only selling to the United States government. So they'd have to deal with that problem. But to allow the sales to countries that wish to defend themselves, that's entirely appropriate. It gets tricky, though, let's be honest, in a country like Taiwan, which isn't exactly a country as far as the Chinese are concerned, right? So when, this, is, this is very important. So making a decision even to allow the Taiwanese to purchase American arms, it's not like we're giving them the arms. We're not arming them. 
We're simply saying, if you wish to buy arms from Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, et cetera, et cetera, we're not going to stop it. We, the United States government, are not going to block those sales. You're still making a political statement to Beijing, right? So the answer is, it depends. You assess the merits on a case-by-case -case basis. Is the benefit... And again, it has to be debated on the benefit from a security perspective. You're not trying to reward a particular U.S. company you know, at, the, at the expense of all of the rest of us right? by increasing the likelihood of war with China. So this is a serious conversation to have. But I would not, just sort of as a blanket statement, say yes, always, or no, never. Right? It's, it's clearly got to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. But that's a great question, Will. All right, so here's, the, here's what I did. I didn't tell you this because I didn't want to prejudice this. But, um, I do have the handouts. If you'd like a copy, grab one or give them to your friend. And I wrote down all my all the people who asked questions. Where's Bill from Temple? Bill from Temple. Here's your uh, very own copy of the Power Problem. If you like it. Um, read the blurb on the back. Um, I like answering the best questions. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. I'll be, I'll be sticking around too for through lunch. So. <laughs>